already said tonight, we're beginning a new study. This one is one that you may be familiar with, that you may have studied in the past, but I want us to spend quite a bit of time over the next few months in going through the book of Acts, and we'll see in just a few minutes why we want to do that, but as we begin tonight, let's just simply make some observations. Number one, the book that we're studying has no, and we'll put that in quotation marks, no official name. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is the author of the book did not give it a name. And so that's why you pick up one translation of the Bible and you'll find one name and you pick up a different one, maybe even the same translation, but by a different publisher, it has a different name. But as we look at it, some of the most common ones, of course, are simply Acts or Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Apostles. And so when you look at the, at the front of your, uh, uh, the book of Acts as we look at it, you may see something that, that is uh, uh, one of those or it may be something that's just a little bit different. Now, why... Why is it that we begin our study by thinking about that? Well, some of those are somewhat of a misnomer. They, they are somewhat of a, a misnaming of the book. When we think about the book that we're going to be studying over the next few months, the book does not contain all of the acts of the apostles. You see, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't cover the majority even of the apostles that we read about. You know, we can go back into the, uh, the, the, the gospel accounts and we see that Jesus had these 12 apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, so forth. We get all of those 12 that are there and then we come to the beginning of the book of Acts. We find another one by the name of Matthias who takes Judas's place and then eventually in the book of Acts we find something about Paul or Saul as he is first called. But primarily, when we're thinking about the book of Acts, as we look at it, as we think about it, what we're studying tonight, it primarily covers two of the apostles. Not, not twelve of them, but the main focus are the two apostles that, that we read about. Who are they in the book of Acts? First one is found in the first several chapters, and we talk about Peter, and the second one takes up pretty much the last uh, two-thirds of the book or so. And who is that? That is Paul. And so we don't read about Thaddeus. We don't read about some of these other guys. And so to say the acts of the apostles or the acts of the holy apostles is somewhat of a misnomer. The book contains much, but not all of the lives even of the two apostles that we are, uh, that, that make the primary emphasis in the book. And so uh, we think about that. But not only that, when we think about the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, it also includes some information in regards to some who are not apostles, does it not? Who do you read about in the book of Acts chapter number 7? Who is doing some preaching, teaching? Stephen. And Stephen is there in that same chapter put to death because of what he is doing. And so we, we learn something about his life. Who do you read about in the book of Acts chapter 8? Different man, but who is it? In Acts chapter 8, we read about 
Philip, do we not? Philip goes down to Samaria, and then Philip and the eunuch, so forth. We, we look at those. And so, as we look at the book that we're looking, that we're studying about, we see that it's not about all the apostles, or even about the entire life of the two apostles that make up the primary uh, points in, in the book of Acts. Uh, it also includes others, but let me ask you this. To, to recount the story of Stephen, who else is included in that story? Mentioned almost in chapter 7, incidentally. Saul. And so we're going to learn more about Saul. Who's included in Acts chapter 8 in regard to Philip? You remember? Philip goes down and preaches in Samaria, and he's unable to impart the Holy Spirit to any of them. And so who comes down? Peter. Peter and John in particular. But, but we focus back on Peter. And so even in the telling of those two stories, we have the mention of the two primary characters that are found in the book of Acts. And so uh, as we look at it, we could simply probably say Acts of Apostles and that would be one of the, one of the names that, that would probably be about as good as anything uh, that we could say. Certain acts of certain apostles, but acts of apostles. And so I don't think that there's going to be a test when we stand before God on the day of judgment that says, okay, now, what was the official name of the book of Acts? But uh, we just want to sort of see if we can get it, get it right. Uh, let, me, let me focus back on one. Why would we not say Acts of the Holy Apostles? Well, all of those men were holy men of God, were they not? Except for one, and he committed suicide, and he was replaced, a man by the name of Judas. And so he wasn't even on the scene in the book of Acts. And so, you know, we could, we could skip over even, even that part. All right, so we talk about the name. But as we think about the book, what is the significance of the book of Acts or Acts of Apostles? What is the significance of it? If I, if I started up here at the beginning of the, the, the group t- tonight, this afternoon, and I said, what's the book of Acts about? What would you say? The church. The church? Okay. Anybody, anybody got anything else? Anything? Okay, hold on to that. Let's think. Let's do some thinking. Okay, I want to. Brother J. W. McGarvey, who lived back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he has a commentary that that is one of the best works on the Book of Acts that you'll ever get, and it's simply J. W. McGarvey's original commentary on Acts. It was published back in the 1800s, 1863, I believe it was. But Brother Garvey wrote in his introduction to his commentary these words. He says, There is therefore no one book in all the Bible to which the present generation of Bible readers so much need to have their attention specifically directed. Now, they wrote just a little bit odd when we read it, the way that, the way that they sometimes put things back, you know, a couple hundred, almost 200 years ago. But... Uh, His point, even though it was penned in 1863, is still relevant today. This generation, the generation that we need, we need to direct them more and more to the book of Acts. 
look at another thing here that he wrote in his commentary, still on page number six. He says, a failure to understand and to appreciate this book has been and still is, and I would add that we could put another little phrase in there, and still is even today, and still is a most prolific source of confusion and error in the popular presentation of the gospel. But failing to discover its chief design, sinners are uh, far more frequently directed to the Psalms of David for instruction upon the subject of the conversation than to this book, which was written for this express purpose. When we think about what he says here, he talks about the chief design. Now, now it's understandable that we consider the confusion and the error that is being taught in the religious world today because you just drive down down the highway and you're going to you're going to run you know you're you're going to run into a lot, lot of different churches and they teach a lot of different things don't teach the same thing about salvation and and, and many times when when we're pointed to to a place in the bible to to find out about our salvation some will go to the Old Testament and say, all right, let's go back there and let's just follow the Ten Commandments. But we need to understand the chief design. Now, you remember just a moment ago, I asked you the question, what is the book of Acts about? And somebody said it's about the church. And, and in reality, you are correct. The book of Acts is a book of history. It has to do with the church. But a careful study of the book indicates that Luke's intent was not simply to write a book of history on the church. That's not his intent as you go through the book of Acts and study through that particular book. Brother Curtis Cate said it this way. He said, Acts is an invaluable and indispensable historical link or bridge between the life of Christ as recorded in the gospel records and the New Testament epistles. Well, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on one side of the book of Acts, and then we got Romans through Revelation on the other side, but there has to be a bridge. We have the life of Christ that is, that is here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we have the church in existence in Rome, Romans and on forward, okay? And so you've got to have something that bridges it. So that historical aspect of the book of Acts is there, and no one is denying that. What I'm suggesting that it's not simply Luke's plan to, to write a book of history in regard to the book of Acts. Not only that, but the book details the evangelistic progress in the early church, does it not? We start in the book of Acts chapter 2, and we read about what happened in Jerusalem, and we find that there were <coughs> 3,000 people who were baptized for the remission of their sins, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And then we continue reading, and it's not long. We get to that there are 5,000, and then we get to multitudes. And, and, and then we even see the gospel spreading into other parts of the, the world. It goes to Samaria, then it goes to uh, the Gentile nations, and so forth. And that is the, evangel, the, the evangelistic progress of the early church. Luke tells us some things about that. But Luke's aim was not simply to give a history of the growth 
of the early church. That's not, that's not all that he has in mind. If it was, why doesn't he tell us about the growth of the church in Egypt, in Arabia, and even Rome itself? You see, there were other of the apostles who were in other places who were spreading the gospel just like Peter and Paul were. And that's an important thing because the gospel got to these other places as well. We don't need to be fooled into thinking that, okay, Peter and Paul were the only two preaching. And the people they preached to heard and they preached to other folks. And those were the only ones who were working. Where were the other ten? Where were they? They were doing the same thing in different places. We read about the death of James in the book of Acts, don't we? And so we lose one of them, but as we think about it, you know, if we're just looking at the evangelistic growth, looks like we'd be wanting to see more. And so that's one of the reasons I suggest to you tonight that, that it's not just about the evangelistic progress of the, uh, of, of, of the church. And so think about this. It is tragic that a lack of understanding and study of this book has led the religious world, for the most part, to fail in their understanding of the kingdom of God. What is it that we're talking about? Go back to McGarvey. Let's think about what McGarvey says. Click me there, Larry. For some reason, I'm, I stopped. McGarvey says, much the greater part of Acts may be resolved into a detailed history of cases of conversion and of unsuccessful attempts at the conversion of sinners. If we extract from it all cases of this kind with the facts and incidents preparatory to each and immediately consequent upon it, we will have exhausted almost the entire contents of the narrative. All other matters are merely incidental. Let's put that in country boy terms, terms I can understand. Brother McGarvey says, when you look at the book of Acts, what should be jumping out at us is the conversion process. Not just the growth from here to yonder to other places, but the conversion process. And when we learn that, and we see how people were made Christians in the early church, then surely we are bettered for that. We keep reading. McGarvey says, all the remainder of the history consists unmistakably in detailed accounts of conversions. Such being the work performed by the author, we may readily determine his design by inquiring why should any cases of conversion be put upon the record. Evidently, it was that men might know how conversions were effected and in what they consisted. Do we read about the growth of the early church? Yes. Is it historical? Yes. But what is the underlying foundation of all of it? Converting people to Christ and how that was done. 
how people were made Christians in the first century. If we lose sight of that, we just look at it as a history book or, or as a book that, that, that gives us, you know, a little bit of the growth, just shows how the, the church exploded and grew, then we're going to miss the majority. He goes on. He says, The cases which are recorded represent all the different grades of human society, all the different degrees of intellectual and religious culture, all the common occupations in life, and all the different countries and languages of the then known world. The design of this variety is to show the adaptation of the one gospel scheme to the conversion of all classes of men. Now again, let's see if we can put that in terms I can understand. Where do we read about, or or rather, who do we read about in regard to conversions in in the book of Acts? We read about people in... Jerusalem, don't we? Those who actually had witnessed Jesus, many of them who had witnessed Jesus being crucified in Acts chapter 2. You keep going, jump on over, let's just jump ahead to the book of Acts chapter number uh, 8. Who do we read about there? Acts chapter 8, first part of it, we read about Philip going to... Samaria in the first part, don't we? Philip goes to Samaria. Who are the Samaritans? Yeah, they were considered half-breeds because of why? The northern kingdom had been taken into captivity, and and the ones who were there never never really came back. The ones who were left, they intermarried with, uh, with the Assyrians. Okay, and so... They're not pure Jewish people anymore. And so what happens? We go from those who, who were under the Old Testament law considered God's chosen people to these half-breed people. And, and they were looked down upon. And we learn something about that back in John chapter 4, don't we? When we read about Jesus being at the well with a Samaritan woman and she said, hey... And I'm paraphrasing this. Men like you don't usually talk to women like me. Right? Well then, in Acts chapter 8, the end of that chapter, who is converted? Somebody said it earlier. The eunuch. Who's the eunuch? Who is he? He's a manager of the queen's treasury in Ethiopia. He's a He's a high-ranking public official, right? You got the, got the Jews, you got the Samaritans. Now we're going up to a higher class of folks. The gospel was the same for the folks in, in Jerusalem as it was in Samaria. It was the same for this man who was called, simply known as the Ethiopian eunuch, as it was for the folks in Samaria. And you keep going, Acts chapter 9. Who is the... Uh, who's converted in Acts chapter 9? The apostle, who would, a man who would become the apostle, Paul, and who was he? He's an up-and-coming yeah, he was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He was, he was the upper crust of the Jewish nation, was he not? 
And God says, I'm going to send you somewhere. Where am I going to send you? You're, you're going to be my servant who goes and preaches to who? Gentiles. Gentiles. But he also says, you're not just going to the Gentiles, you're going to kings. Yeah, you're going to the really upper crust. Okay? Do we ever read Paul, read of Paul doing that? Yeah, unfortunately, he got arrested. He appealed to Caesar, and you know what? On his way there, what did he get to do? He got to preach to the king, at least one, King Agrippa, and some other governors along the way, Festus and Felix and so forth. And so, did Paul or Peter, either one, preach anything different to the, Gen to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to the eunuch? Did, did God himself send Paul to a man's house by the name of Ananias? Was he told something, anything different than what everybody else? A and when Paul goes to these other places, and you read about, like in Acts chapter 16, when you read about um, the Philippian jailer, was he told to do something different, or did it all fit together? Was it the same? Was, was the end result of what they did the same? And the answer to that, as we study through it, we're going to find yes. And so the Bible, the book of Acts, tells us historically what happened, but the focus is not just on history. The focus is on how to become a Christian. And everybody did it the same way. And that's what's wrong in a lot of the religious world. We've got some teaching one way and some others teaching a different way and, and, and a third group teaching something else. And that's not the way that it was. And part of that is because men have failed to understand this one very significant book in the Bible. And we as Christians need to keep that in our mind. Okay? Now, let me ask you another question. We're going to run out of time tonight. Not even get to the, to the first verse. Let me ask you another question. Who wrote the book? Luke. Okay? I hear, I hear Luke wrote the book. You know what my next question is? How do you know? Did Luke sign the book? Boy, it's awfully quiet in here. Y'all jump in there and answer. It's not hard. How do we know Luke was the one who wrote the book of Acts? It's addressed to Theophilus. Okay. All right. Let me come back to that one. Let's go back to some of the early writers. In an early manuscript or an early thing that we have called the Anti-Marcionite Prologues of the Gospels that were most likely written somewhere around 150 A.D. They're dated anywhere from 150 to 250, but most likely they were written in, in, in around 150. But what the Marcionite, Anti-Marcionite Prologues are is, is some of those early church fathers writing against some of the some of the things that people had begun to teach that were wrong. 
And, and so they wrote some, some introductions, if you will, to the books, to the different books. And in particular, the part that we found here is about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and part of Acts. Okay? And so what does it say? Well, in, in writing about the book of Luke, notice what the writer says. Now remember, this is about 150 A.D. Indeed, Luke was an Antiochian Syrian from Antioch of Syria, a doctor by profession. Do we know that from Scripture? Yes, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. A disciple of the apostles. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom, serving the Lord blamelessly. He never had a wife. He never fathered children and died at the age of 84, full of the Holy Spirit in Boeda. Now, these are not inspired writings, but they're historic, historical in nature because they were written so long ago. He's telling us, you know, some information that we really don't have, that we don't know. He goes on and says, Therefore, although the Gospels had already been written, indeed, by Matthew in Judea and by Mark in Italy... Moved by the Holy Spirit, he wrote down the gospel in the parts of Achaia, signifying in the uh, preface that the others were written before his, but also that it was of the greatest importance for him to expound. And we'll talk more about that kind of thing when we get actually into the book. With the greatest diligence, the whole series of events in his narration for the Greek believers so that they would not be led astray by the lure of Jewish fables or seduced by the fables of the heretics and stupid solicitations fall away from the truth. He's just telling us why he wrote the book of Luke, but we're not finished. And so at once, at the start, he took up the extremely necessary story from the birth of John, who is the beginning of the gospel, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and was a companion in the perfecting of the people, likewise in the introducing of baptism and the companion in martyrdom. Of this disposition, the prophet Malachi, one of the twelve, certainly makes mention. And indeed, afterwards, this, I read the whole long thing just to get to this one part. And indeed, afterwards, the same Luke wrote the Acts of Apostles. Later, the apostle John wrote the Apocalypse, book of Revelation, on the island of Patmos, and then the gospel in Asia. And so, from that historical perspective, from that writer, you know, he's writing about Luke, gives us information about his death and all those things, but the notable thing tonight is, historically speaking, the, the church fathers, as you, if you will, said Luke was the writer. Not the only one. In the Muratorian fragment, now, I'm throwing these things out, but the only thing about the Muratorian fragment that really should stand out to you, it is the earliest document that we have listing all the books of the Bible. Okay? We just, it's called a fragment because we don't have the whole thing, but we have at least that part. And the part, part of the part that we have of it he says the third book of the gospel is that according to Luke. Luke, the well-known physician after the ascension of Christ, when Paul had taken with him one zealous for the law, composed it in his own name according to the general belief, yet he himself had not seen the Lord in the flesh. And therefore, as he was able to ascertain events, so indeed he begins to tell the story of Jesus 
uh, the story from the birth of John. Okay, so he, so he writes that. In addition, find this still in this Muratorian fragment. In addition, the Acts of the Apostles are comprised by Luke in one book, in address to the most excellent Theophilus, because these events took place when he was present himself. He shows this clearly, that the principle on which he wrote was to give only what fell under his own notice by the omission of the suffering of Peter and also the journey. Point is, simply this, in 170 A.D., here's another source that tells us Luke is the writer. Well, we could multiply that, Irenaeus, and against heresies, he talks about Luke being the writer. Clement of Alexandria, who lived from 150 to 215, attributes it to Luke. Tertullian, Eusebius, all of these guys say, hey, Luke was the writer of the book of Luke. Okay? Now let's come back to what uh, Brother Burt mentioned a minute ago. Both Luke and Acts addressed Theophilus. They're both addressed to Theophilus. What does Act, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 3 say? It seems good to me also having followed all things closely from, for some uh, time past to write an, an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus. He's writing an orderly account most excellent Theophilus. And we're going to come back to that most excellent part a little bit later. But as we look at it, he's writing it to Theophilus. What does uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 1 say? In the first book of Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to, to do and teach. Okay, in the first book. What's that? I wrote to Theophilus, and now I'm writing to Theophilus again. So it seems that the writer says, hey... I'm the one who wrote Luke, and I'm also the one who wrote the book of Acts as well. So you've got that. But then there's the we, the we, W-E, the we passages in the book of Acts. What do you mean by that? Open up your Bible real quickly to the book of Acts chapter 16, verses 10 through 17. Acts 16, 10 through 17. And you'll see very easily what I'm, what I'm talking about. The Bible says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought out to go, or sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach. And, and you keep tracing that on down, and you see, uh, uh, we sailed from Troas, we made direct voyage, uh, we remained in the city some day, uh, days, we went outside the gate, uh, we sat down with Lydia. Um, she urged us, she prevailed upon us as we, going to the place of prayer, we were met. Those are the we passages, okay? And there's several of them in Acts 16, 10 through 17, Acts 25 through 21, or, or 5 through, Acts 20 verse 5 through 21, 18, Acts 27, 1 through 28, 16. Now, now why is that significant? Well, when you, when you look and you begin to think about all of the people that we know who traveled with the Apostle Paul. For example, Colossians chapter 4 verse 14 that we've already mentioned says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you 
as does Demas. 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Philemon verse 24, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Wayne Jackson says it this way, and it's hard for me to put it any better. He says, when one assembles the data from Acts along with the four letters Paul wrote from Rome during his two-year confinement in that city, namely Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, the only associate that can be fitted appropriately into the we sections is Luke. And so out of one was left here and another one was sent there and, and Luke seems to be the only one who fits. And so we've got the early church fathers along with the early writings. Uh, we've got the, both Luke and Acts being addressed to Theophilus. And, and then we've got uh, these wee passages, but there's one more. When you read through, and I won't take time to do it tonight, when you read through the book of Acts and you see things happening, you're going to get a medical description. Same way you do in the book of Luke. And why is that? What did Colossians 4 verse 14 say? Luke is a... He's a physician. He's a doctor. He's going to describe it in medical terms. When Paul gets snake bit... Are you going to talk about it in medical terms? And so when we look at it, we've got all of these things that, were, that add up. When was the book written? When was the book written? Well, let's, let's close out by just noticing a few things here. Number one, the book ends with Paul's two-year confinement in Rome. It sort of ends abruptly. You know, basically tells us Paul was, Paul was here for two years. Okay. Not only that, but nothing is mentioned regarding Nero and his persecution against the church. And we know that that happened beginning in about 64 A.D. Add to that, Luke records the death of others, but he really doesn't talk about the death of Peter or Paul, either one. And so that leads us to conclude that, that Luke probably wrote it before either one of them died. Okay, they're his main characters, and yet he tells us about the death of James, and he tells us about the death of Stephen, but he doesn't tell us about the death of his main characters, so that leads to an earlier date. And so, putting it all together, it's likely written somewhere between 61 and 63 A.D. 61 and 63 A.D. We're looking some 30 years. Some 30 years after Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascends back to heaven when this book is penned by Luke. All right, that's a brief introduction. I know those things are sometimes technical, but I think sometimes we really need to look at some of those little details like that as we begin. But I really am looking forward to next Wednesday night because we get in the text. And that's what I like to get into the book itself, and we'll start taking it apart, looking at it, studying about it. And as we said, we're doing an in-depth study, so we'll be spending some time in looking at it. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight.